You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thanks that we can gather again uh, to start our week, uh, to, to do our weekly remembrance of what you've done for us as a as a body in worship, and I pray that we can do justice to this topic. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. And do justice biblically to the topic. That, that's what we're really trying to do here. Yeah. Come on in. Because, I mean, I think that's the key here. How do, how do we do justice biblically to the topic, right? Because the, the topic is, uh, is not... Uh, I would argue it is is strictly understood biblically if you want to understand it correctly, but but obviously people talk about love and think about love in all kinds of creative and different ways, and so I want to just start as a, a this is kind of the wrap up of the series of the of the the three part series, uh, and, but I want to start today by just doing a little bit of refreshing, not not a lot, but I want to start with a couple of um, a couple of important points I think that if 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 all we need is love. What is it? And it, how is it more than fulfillment, uh, personal fulfillment and happiness? And how is it more than duty and obligations? I think those are some guiding questions to ask ourselves. I mean, when we think about it just as, as, a, as a concept, um, it seems to cover almost all of our needs and interests. You just say, well, I, if, if you just love something, it's okay. Or if somebody loves me, it's okay. Um, but, but we... we when we think of it that way, when we think of love as this all sort of encompassing uh, idea that can satisfy us somehow uh, on our own terms, I think we miss an important paradox, to, an important paradox of the 21st century and the times that we live in. Uh, science, uh, science is, uh, is the default arbiter of truth in the modern world, but science struggles to explain the idea of love. So as much as we talk about it, as much as it's part of our pop culture, as much as we use it just sort of indiscriminately as a term, we don't really have a scientific basis for what we're talking about. It's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's, a, it's something, it's the effective. But the second part of that, and the, the, the paradox of it, is that love is also a concept that even though we don't know quite how to measure it or evaluate it, uh, culturally, it's become the default measure of personal happiness and fulfillment in the modern world. Uh, if we're loved, we're okay. If we, no matter what the object of the love is, it, it sort of becomes its own self-justification. If I love it, or if I love him or her, then then it's okay. It's all you need is love, right? That that it becomes an end in itself. That's what I'm suggesting. Love becomes an end in itself. But what is it exactly? And there's several places we've traversed with this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, the guiding, the, the guiding sort of vision that we want to, to, to set for our understanding of love is what does Scripture say about it? What does Scripture teach us about the idea of love? And where are we in congruity or out of congruity? with what the scriptures say about love. And if it's more than just personal fulfillment of happiness, what is it exactly? 
And to, to do that, we've done some exegesis. We've seen that the first, the very first encounter we have with the word is in Genesis 22, the Hebrew word. The very first encounter we have with the word love is in Genesis 22. And it's where Abraham takes Isaac to his sacrifice. And uh, Yahweh, the Lord, refers to Isaac as your beloved, the one whom you have loved. And so the first encounter we have with the concept of love is in that establishment of that covenant through Abraham to the nations where Isaac is spared and the ram is replaced uh, him uh, when, at, on Mount Moriah. Okay, so it's the first sort of look we have of love as uh, a call to obedient sacrifice through faith and hope, right? A call to obedient sacrifice guided by faith and hope. You know, the problem is, that sounds great on Sunday, but we don't think of love that way necessarily every other day of the week. We, we, we try, we maybe aspire to it, we, we wrestle with it that way. But we think of love romantically. We think, we think of love filtered through the cultural categories of love. We think of love in terms of friendships or family, how we love our, our children, our, our parents. And um, th- those are all okay. There's nothing illegitimate about those ways of thinking about love. But the only way that those can be ordered correctly, the only way we can get to a, a proper ordering of those things in terms of in, Christianly, is if we think of it as, as the Bible sets the context of sacrifice guided by faith and hope. So that's the launching point of the last couple of the first kind of lesson on this is that all these other sort of aspects of love in our lives that we uh, aspire to. Um, Let's face it, they frustrate us. Uh, they fall short. Um, we don't love our family the way we think we should. Or we don't love our, uh, our children don't love us, let's say, the way they should. Uh, they, um, we, we, we don't, you get it. You get it. We can go rehearse a lot of these ideas, but we, we fall short. So then we have to turn, we have to turn then either in that frustration to either trying to grasp at uh, a kind of how do I make this right, right? How do I make these relationships right? How do I, how do I get this right? Or in doing that, we have to ask ourselves, is there a way of thinking about love and these relationships uh, the way God wants us to think about it? And that's a big statement. But that may be all we have in the end. Is how does Scripture tell us to order this? So the starting point, I would argue, is uh, this, the, the Genesis 22. Well, we also know, though, that once we've in, thought about love this way, once we start trying to think biblically about love, we have to take seriously the problem of sin. We have to take seriously the problem of alienation and transgression from God's will. So things we love can become distorted. Even the idea of love itself can become distorted in terms of its object. We can have wrongly directed love, even maybe without realizing it sometimes. And perhaps that's part of our frustration in romance and family with with friendships. So the idea 
of love as wrongly ordered desire, of not having our desires properly directed, can become a kind of frustration when we wrestle with the idea of love in relationships. And I think the scriptures are, are pretty clear about this in its discussion of idols. We talked about that last week. The way we, we turn to idols. We turn to things that substitute the love of God uh, for, for something else. We, we fill in that space. Uh, St. Augustine called this cupiditas or cupidity. Wrongly ordered love. Wrongly ordered desire. So we take this cultural idea of love that's in music, it's in TV, it's in movies. It, it, it saturates us in terms of pop culture, right? We take this idea of love and we begin to see that for all of its appeal, somehow it falls short. Somehow in practice it doesn't always get what the movie has, the happy ending or the, mu- the song the emotion that it can affect is not always there, right? And so what I wanted to encourage us to do as we you sort of wrap this up and sort of come to some conclusion about it is how do you undistort it, right? If we take these premises as real, if we take these sort of arguments as real that we were made to love, we feel love, we want love, We want to give love. If we believe that's real, we were created that way, but at the same time we acknowledge there's a kind of frustration, regret, (laughs) uh, misdirection, even misapplication of the idea. How do we reorient it, right? How, How do we do that? And how do we do it in a way that would be honoring to scripture, that, that scripture would, would, would coach us and lead us to believe Christianity would lead us, uh, uh, to believe. And so, um, I suggest this rightly ordered love. If we're going to order love correctly, we need a new understanding of reality itself. We need a restoration to God's proper design and purpose for ourselves. Uh, and this restoration actually is not simply a feeling. It's not simply a matter of intellect or or even will. It's not an affection. The restoration involves a new kind of authority. It involves looking at truth a new way, a new pattern of obedience. To rightly understand love means that we understand truth in a, in a different way, and that we cannot separate them, as we'll develop in a moment. And as evidence of this, as evidence of this biblically, I, I would encourage you to go back and look at where Christ gives us the greatest commandments. Um, when he admonishes us uh, that the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, right? And he does that in three important parts of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that everywhere you see that being admonished, that that love, it's always associated with authority. It's always associated with the authority of the Christ, the kingdom of God, and that which the Father has granted Christ. So we, even in the great commandment to love, which can be tossed around a little liberally, you know, all you got to do is love, it's just love your neighbor as yourself and, and everything's okay. Just love. 
You can't separate it, though, from the truth of who Christ is. And you cannot separate it or um, excise it from the authority that Christ brings. Okay? So, that's kind of where we've traversed. I don't know if there are any thoughts or questions about that. But that's where we've traveled. And now I just kind of want to land the plane on the idea. Let me see where I want to be. Okay. I want to urge us that, and in conclusion through the the rest of the lesson today, that love cannot be separated from truth. And that may be one of the great errors of the fallen world and of the modern world, that we can separate love from truth and make it what we want it to be. All right. And I hope to show or I hope to try to explore today that that in the few minutes we have, that that is not possible. Love and truth share a relationship. And the passage I would point you to, if you don't, if if you want to read it this evening or something, is first John four. All right. First John four. In first John four, we get the famous statement, God is love we get the famous statement where God, the only place in the Bible where it's an active identification of God as a substance of something. He is love. All right? And so you hear this a lot, and you can hear it in very sort of generic ways. You know, do you believe in God? What do you believe in? Well, I believe in love. Well, wait a minute. Let, let's, let's tease that out a little bit, right? What does that mean exactly? And I think John does that for us. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Okay? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As such, we ought to love one another. Okay. Where do we see God? We don't see God, but we see God in love and the way he makes that love complete in us. And we live in him through the Spirit. Uh, The whole of 1 John is saturated with this idea of love and truth and authority. Okay? The authority of Christ, specifically. That's what 1 John is concerned with, whatever this congregation he's dealing with or this group of people he's dealing with. It sounds like John might have had circumstances not unfamiliar to us, where love is kind of tossed around as an ideal. But what anchors it? And he's trying to draw his people back to understanding the only thing that can anchor it is God in Christ, not just the ideal. So let's explore this a little bit further as a launching point. If love shares a relationship with truth, which I think Scripture says it does, you can't separate the two. God is love does not mean that love is God. Right? That's where we left off. If God is love, it doesn't mean love is God. We cannot assert love any more than we can assert other ideas like justice or beauty, right? as truth, okay, as as a God. 
if we make them God, if we make beauty a God, if we make justice a God, what we've done is we've exalted an attribute, an aspirational attribute of above God. We've made it the God. And we can do that with love. But that's not what Scripture says. It does not teach that love is God. And so I'm suspicious myself when people, even professing Christians, say that Christianity is simply about love. What does that mean? What, what have we asserted, you see? Um, on the one hand, you may have asserted everything correctly. But on the other hand, it depends on what the object of that love is. Okay? So that, that would be my first point. The second one would be love shares a relationship with truth, under love shares a relationship with truth, is that love, according to Scripture, is not indiscriminate or abstract. And what do I mean by that? Indiscriminate means the opposite of discriminate. Indiscriminate means random, right? It means non-selective. It means... Um, not discerning in some ways, or, or isolating. And abstract, of course, means, well, abstract. It means it's not concrete. You can't nail it down to a particular um, sort of uh, thing or idea or concept. That's not what Scripture teaches. It does not teach, and I'm launching here again from First John 4, uh, that love is indiscriminate or abstract. So, it, 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 verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. So, to say God is love, and to say, suggesting that this love is just all-encompassing of whatever, fill in the blank, is not true. It's simply not true because it has to be grounded in the tr- Christ and who Christ is. Another thought about love sharing a relationship with truth. We do not initiate love for God, rather God loved us first. Right? That goes all the way back to the Genesis passage in Genesis 22 with the anticipation of the covenant to the nations, the the hope for the nations, hope for the Gentiles. But again, in verse 10 in 1 John, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So any sort of cultural appropriation of the idea of love, whether it's uh, pop culture or whether it's high philosophical sort of exhortation to love as a kind of social ideal, it, it has to, again, have a reference point. And according to Scripture, the initiator of love is God. We can't generate it. Nor can we make it happen in such a way that is pleasing to God. Okay? Under this category of love sharing a relationship with truth. Right? Love shares a relationship with truth. I think this is my final... Oh, no, it's not. I got another one. Uh, God's love is manifest in Christ as sacrifice and Savior. Right? So you see the connectivity of these, right? Uh, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And there's a word we don't often want to talk about with love, and that is the problem of sin and love. A kind of harsh reality we have to deal with. So again, out of 1 John 4, it's not arbitrary, it's not abstract, it's concretely tied to the act of sacrifice and salvation. All right? Now, 
what, what I would also encourage you to, to, to look at here, uh, when you look at John, all right? As a matter of fact, let me get the... I think, it's, I think it's worth reading that when we talk about the idea of love and when we talk about this phrase, God is love, you can contextualize it even further with warnings about false love and false teaching, which again begs the question, that means there's truth somewhere then. We can do this wrong. We can believe things about love that are incorrect. So let me give you just a an example of what I'm, I'm talking about here from the same, um, the same book, First uh, John chapter 2. All right? Do not, this is, this is uh, uh, John's admonition. Do not love, there's the word, the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That, that's, that's the context, again, that we find the phrase, God is love, and the very concrete display of that love in Christ. So the Word of God, the Scriptures, makes a distinction between true and false love. And it also kind of goes back, if you think about it, to that context we see where Jesus says there is uh, the, the sum of the law is to love God with all your heart and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. When he says that in the Synoptic Gospels, the sum of it, uh, when he says that, it's also in the context of his authority as Christ, you see. You cannot isolate the concept from the kingship. You cannot isolate it from the work of Christ. That means, according to John, beware, be careful. Love is not something to play with. We can love the wrong things, and we can love them the wrong way. It cannot be a justification uh, for anything. And then if you also, the passage just before the God is love passage in John 4, 1 through 6. It's the same admonition. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It is what he calls the spirit of antichrist, against Christ. So again, John, 1 John 2, 1 John 4, before we can even begin to wrestle with God is love as an, as an extension of himself, what is the admonition? Beware, be careful. There's false teaching. There are objects, uh, there, there's false information out there in this world about what love is and how it can be understood. Maybe even we should take that uh, 
carefully and cautiously as a warning that that could even be in the church itself. We may have false teachers, according to the Bible, that we have to test against the question of truth. Even if those teachers are asserting love as the preeminent ideal of Christianity. That's a bold statement. I'm not saying that to throw down any particular gauntlet. I'm simply saying it because if we wrestle with the text thoroughly, you can't escape it. There's some element of truth that has to be tied to the concept of love against which we measure the idea of love. Well, how about this one? This is the one that gets read at every wedding I've ever been, ever been to, and people put it in a frame and they cross-stitch it and all that stuff. Love, the 1 Corinthians 13. Um, this is the, where Paul, you know, Corinth was a mess from what we can gather. And Paul, a couple of times, walked into this mess trying to clean it up. I mean, if, there's, if there was one church situation you don't want to be in an angel, it's Corinth, apparently, because there's problems everywhere. But if, what, when, when Paul talks about uh, love, the famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, of course, it comes right after his ordering of the church. He's trying to tell them to quit fighting over which spiritual gift you have <laughs> and, and who's really in charge of this or that. And, and think about this in terms of, well, the attribute of God, which is love and your calling in, in love. And if you read it carefully, because I'm not sure we use this passage correctly a lot when we, I mean, I guess it's good. I guess it's fine for uh, people getting married to, to maybe hug and kiss over this. But I, I think, and in, in, in to put it up in their bathroom. But I, I think, but at the same time, I'm not sure the context is fully correct, right? Because it is in the context of the admonition of spiritual gifts and the speaking of tongues and prophecy. But here's the famous passage, and, and, and you're familiar with Love is patient, the attributes, right? Love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Uh, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to laugh. It's just I'm just trying to find myself in the passage. So far, I've failed. But uh, ultimately, you know, we start looking at it. And we're like, well, I, I can be all of those things most of the time. Uh, so what is Paul getting at here? Um, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, is another translation, but rejoices in the truth. What's my point? Is that even when we see the appeal to 1 Corinthians 13, which is so common in popular sort of Christian culture, it, it has a context of truth. It's not separating that out, right? Truth is the only thing that can order ourselves to realize, well, I kind of am arrogant and rude. You know, if I don't have truth, I don't know that. Right? I'm not patient. Why? How do I know that? Because there's truth, and I know what patience is. Right? Paul is not saying just dig it out and make yourself these things. He's orienting, like John and like Christ in the Gospels, love always has an orientation. It's due north is always the, the question of truth itself. And truth means love has a kind of authority to it. We can't just allow it free reign in our imaginations or in our practice, okay, despite what our culture tells us.
Okay. Any thoughts on that or questions? Um, and then. Yeah, Joe. One example that I have, I'm, um, I'll say this, you know, I'm a wimp when it comes to, um, I just want everybody to be happy. And, <laughs> and so, I guess a verse we are familiar with that is better is an open rebuke than love concealed. And rebuke is clearly speaking with authority about a truth. So, there's a truth here. And, um, but I don't want to rebuke. No, I don't either. Most of the time. <laughs> I, you know, I want my children to be happy. Or right. My associate to be happy, or whomever. And I found that a, um, it, it's, it's not something, I think it really balances that fact that there is a truth. Mm -hmm. You know, this would really be for their betterment. Mm -hmm. And that truth needs to be recognized. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to do that. But but that's being that's concealing love. That's, that's yeah. holding back love. And I remember when Bishop Hill was speaking at Canoga, uh, I, I, that verse has been very real to me through my life and very discomforting when I had to call and rebuke someone. I didn't want to do that. Right. I was bored that didn't call. But anyway, he said if you find any pleasure in that rebuke, you're probably not the person hmm. who's given the rebuke. And I approached him after I said, I have followed that verse. I said, that's, that's really good. absolutely true. True, in yeah. my opinion, because I've never found pleasure in that. That's really good. And yeah. um, I'd run from it if I could. But anyway, I just, I think that the idea that there is a truth, here's it in a different context, but I'm a, I'm yeah, expressing that. no, no, I, I hear you. Yeah, and, and I think where we don't find rebuke or pause or question, I, I think more and more, I want to be careful how I say it, I think romantic love is one of the places we tend to say, well, that's your truth. You know? Romantic love, that's your truth. That's private. That's something between you and, and whatever the object of your love is. Um, we do it with our families more and more, too, like with our children, right? Uh, we, we privatize this idea to, well, that's a negotiation uh, between individuals. We, we think very much in terms of our freedom first, right, when it comes to the idea of love and how it's applied. Our friendships are the probably the easiest there. Well, I'm just going to stop hanging out with you or whatever, you know, because you haven't met my expectations or whatever. Um, so we negotiate this idea of love constantly in romance. We say, well, that's, that's between you and your partner. Uh, our children, well, that's a, you know, that, you know, however you, you want to do that, that's between you. And I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm not suggesting there's this, uh, but what I'm also suggesting to your, is that when you when you throw yourself back into the scriptural sort of a lineage of this, this, this development, um, we can't do that. We're held accountable somehow. We're held accountable somehow to the authority of Christ. He doesn't separate love and the call to love from his own authority, nor do the apostles. And that's a reckoning. That's a hard reckoning. Um, 
let me let me close in the next few minutes. Uh, hey, Jason, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Devotion is not a word you said, but I was just, that was a very interesting point. Like, I think about with my children and my spouse. Like, I love them, so, like, what does that mean? And it's like that I'm there, that, like, they, you know, you say it all the time, like, unconditional love. Like, right. You can do anything, and I'm still going to be there, like, trying to whatever. Yeah, hammer it out, yeah. Right. Like, I don't know. I mean, de- devotion is probably not the right word, but maybe it's maybe that's like. Yeah, I think love is different from devotion, and I, I use the word duty in one one of the the first lesson yeah. that we can think of love in terms of our duty, and this is very much. Well, I was going to say it's a it's a male and female thing. I mean, we we see duty certain ways, and by following our duty, we're we're loving. I think there's truth to that. Yeah. I think there's truth to that. I don't know though that it, it's a complete truth. Right, because because we can follow our duty in love and still miss the mark. In the sense that if we're following our duty in love, but it's oriented to say our own advantage or our own family, our own success or our own you know our own ambitions or whatever, I'm not sure we've fully grasp the agape part, the, 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 the God love part, where duty becomes a kind of sacrifice of the moment. But what's its orientation beyond I'm just trying to do the right thing? There's nobility in that. God, but if you get even more simplistic than that, it's almost like connection. Now, you know, yep. like God, God, yep. God gets nothing from us. That's right. That's it. That's right. That's right. And that's why I think it's it's very important when we when we try to reason this through as believers. Unbelievers love each other. They, there is love in the world. There there is real love outside of the Christian faith, but it's not complete. It's not understood in its in the totality of redemption. I think that's the argument I would try to make. The totality of redemption, the completeness of it in terms of its own that so my point being where we do fail and where it begins to fail us we have a measure against which we can begin to understand truth in our failure and it, and, and and that's what that's what the authority of Christ can reorient us back to so quickly um it what i would as we move into the the, the christmas week i would give us a final couple of thoughts to think about um, with the incarnation as the great sort of emblematic symbol of eternal love, the, the gift of Christ, the, the gift of, of the baby, uh, Jesus. And uh, here, I just would want to encourage us to think this week about when we think of the incarnation and we think of it as love, we can also think of it as both judgment and comfort. And that maybe the right way to get at God's love is it belong it's not just a, a word of comfort and hope but it is also a word of judgment it's also a word of evaluation of our real condition um, look at Luke 2 when Simeon is presented with Jesus remember this old Simeon's been waiting goodness knows how long to see the Messiah and here's the the hope here's the comfort 
He takes the babe in his arms. He blesses God and says, I can depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's a, that is a hopeful, comforting message from Simeon, that he's holding the hope of the world in the form of this, this, this God-man, this baby, this incarnate God. Then Simeon blesses them and he turns to Mary and says, and this is the judgment. This child is destined to cause falling and rising among many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, the, to the, the, the loss of Christ on the cross. What a strange thing for somebody to, as they hand your baby back to you, you know. Wow, thank you very much. Um, no, but in, in God's word, of course, this takes on a whole new meaning. And the meaning I would point this to is that the love and hope and the counsel and the comfort come with the judgment. It comes with the judgment that this would not be necessary if it weren't for our transgression. The only reason this is happening is the transgression of humanity. And then, of course, perhaps the most famous passage the most famous passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. It's so beautiful. So, I mean, we've heard it so much. If we're not careful, we can get callous with it, careless with it. But there it is, the summation of hope and counsel, no matter how you have failed, no matter how you feel unloved, no matter what your, uh, your condition in love, there it is, the perfect love of God in the incarnation. But if you keep reading, this is the verdict. It comes because of judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We don't get that. First of all, this would be a lot to write on the poster board at the uh, football game, I suppose. It'd be a long paragraph. Everyone who does, not, does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have, been, what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Love, hope, comfort, and judgment are always taken together in Scripture, the Incarnation itself. So what I would uh, urge us to think about is that when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the third person of the Trinity, we apprehend God's love in Christ as sacrifice, judgment, and mercy, we are on the right path. We're on the path to rightly ordered love. It doesn't mean we've arrived, we won't, this side of glory. Uh, but it means we're on the right path. Uh, that from the, the manger, uh, through the cross, through uh, the, the second coming itself, through the ordering uh, of, of Christ enthroned in glory, through all of it is a way of understanding love rightly. That then it is a constant sort of draw, a constant appeal to you to us as believers, that wherever we fail in our relationships, uh, wherever we fail in, in, in feeling unloved, 
that this message here stands eternal. We stand both in judgment under it, but in perfect faith and hope through it. And, and I guess what I would conclude with is that um, to understand love rightly is to understand not only God rightly, but understand ourselves rightly. That that's what it, the scriptures allow when I say love is judgment. It, it allows us to stand sort of raw, empty, naked before the truth and say, I need to know what love is now, now that it's been stripped of its cultural assumptions, its, um, its pop cultural expressions, my ideals, my hopes, my aspirations in this world. Once I've been stripped of that and understand the judgment of God and his perfection and his perfect love, then I then can begin to understand love properly and that because God's fundamental, fundamental character is love and shares a relationship with truth, I now can become truthful with myself and with others. So I'll close there. Are there any? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could uh, take time to work through these passages, and we pray that we continue to reflect on the meaning of the Incarnation as judgment and love and hope uh, in, the, in the days ahead. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.